What's up, everyone? We're back with another episode of the Open Guard Cast. Today, our guest is Margo Ciccarelli. She's a black belt under Murillo Santana from Uni Jiu-Jitsu. She's also uh, an instructor on Jiu-Jitsu X, so check out her instructionals there. And she recently got second at the IBJJF Pan Ams in her first major championship as a black belt. So that's a huge accomplishment. Really happy to have you today, Margo. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Danny, for inviting me onto the show. I'm super happy to be here. Awesome. So do you want to just start off talking about how you originally got into Jiu-Jitsu? So I, I started Jiu-Jitsu at the age of 18. I was about to turn 19. And I already had a a very well-rounded martial arts practice. Honestly, like I started martial arts from the age of six years old, mainly in Chinese martial arts, doing like various types of um, different things like Wushu, Wing Chun, and during the time at which I got introduced to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I was <clears throat> practicing Shaolin Kung Fu. And also powerlifting was a daily practice for me at the time. So one of my lifting buddies originally invited me to a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class. And at the time, I had absolutely no idea what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was, other than that it is a martial art and it was in the UFC. And... <laughs> um, my nature is that I never want to turn down an invite. I always want to try something at least once. So I went along with him and I was profoundly disappointed at myself actually because <laughs> I had been training martial arts for so long and I was, I was like, why did I let myself train for so long yet I don't have any idea how to move on the floor? I was like, I felt like a fish out of water. I, it, it wasn't like this, like bad disappointment. It was more like, wow, there's a completely new world here that I haven't yet discovered. Just, I, I feel that I approach most things with a sense of curiosity and like, what can I discover? What else can I explore here? So the first week of training jujitsu, I was training like twice a week. By the second week, it was already like four times. By week three, in my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practice, I was already training daily. So it, it very, I was very quickly addicted to finding out more and obtaining more knowledge about the art. And shortly, shortly after that, well, let, let, me, let me backtrack one second. So I actually studied mm -hmm. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at Mill Hill BJJ in the United Kingdom. So I grew up in the United Kingdom. After the first two weeks, I actually went to Hawaii for a work experience placement. So I thought I was going to major in astrophysics at the time. So I was um, doing a work experience placement at an observatory in Maui, Hawaii. But also at the same time, it was like my first time really being away from home for an extended period of time without my parents. So I was like, oh my God, freedom oh my God, I can train jiu-jitsu every day. <laughs> so I was just really stoked to take this trip, not only from the perspective of like, okay, I'm like doing this really cool thing of the observatory, but also that I, I felt like it was like my ultimate dream just to spend all day training. Like just spend like eight hours a day training was like my teenage dream, really. I felt like I'm at times like a real life anime character. Like I just want to train all day. <laughs> um, now I have a more smart approach to things actually. Yeah. So we will get on to talking about that. But yeah, I was in Maui for three months. I was training at a um, Machado affiliate out there. And then I ended up 
basing myself out of Hong Kong, and that's where my Atos connection actually began. I was training with Rodrigo Capra in Hong Kong, and I ended up going back and forth between Hong Kong, California, and the United Kingdom for a couple of years. I eventually went on to join Unity Jiu-Jitsu in 2017, like just before um, Worlds happened, actually, and I've been with Unity ever since. That's the very Cliff Notes version of <laughs> my training in Jiu-Jitsu. That's awesome. So you talked a little bit about your experience in Chinese martial arts and other disciplines. Can you talk a little bit about how those experiences helped your jiu-jitsu practice and how they hurt it? Like I know you mentioned you felt like a fish out of water on the ground, so it didn't really give you the ground skills. But was there anything from those arts that you really pulled into jiu-jitsu that you felt helped you? Honestly, my beginning in jiu-jitsu, I, I wanted to think of myself as clean paper and not be too influenced by what I already knew. I think there's like, um, there is a tendency to be very presumptuous. Like I didn't want to feel like I, I knew everything just because I had experience in other things. And I think this is my personal idea of what mm -hmm. it means to have a white belt mentality. Like I wanted to go in just completely fresh, take everything as completely new and just with brand new eyes. Um, I think it was actually more at Purple Belt, uh, in my early Purple Belt um, career, that I started to kind of compare my experiences in different martial arts. But I think it was less Chinese martial arts that had a huge influence and more so actually diving into dance that gave me like a completely different lens of jiu-jitsu i i felt completely transformed when i started to dive deeper into dance so specifically i would say like contemporary dance because i think a lot of what people think about dance is very structured and it's very strict it's fixed and there's choreography there's memorization and i think that's also very common in chinese martial arts where there's forms you're memorizing a lot and i think one of the Things that I I was drawn towards from the beginning when I trained jiu-jitsu was that there are no forms. We're just always improvising. You know, you you learn some techniques, but eventually like you string together the techniques to create your own sequences to get to your end game with your partner. I, I thought that was amazing because I, I really, really hate memorizing things. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not bad at it. But like even when I went in, back into dance, um, I, I did some street dance when I was younger, like break dancing and stuff. But to go into a more, um, I would say, an elegant art form such as contemporary dance, I took up some ballet as well, even though that's considered to be a little bit more um, rigid in form. But yeah, Chinese martial arts gave me introspective tools. So I can't say that it went to waste, for example. There are also a lot of concepts in Chinese martial arts that talk about things like lines and circles. So you, you kind of understand how movement trajectories look around the body. And I think that's extremely useful to be able to visualize space and to create mental maps. I think if you can create a mental map and visualize where you need to get around your partner, this is an extremely beneficial tool to have. I think um, those tools definitely facilitated me a lot as a competitor, but also a teacher. 
Um, to elaborate a bit more on um, what dance did for me, I, I think because dance has been around a lot longer than Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I, there's been so many teachers before us in the dance world that have had time to refine the classroom format, to refine how things are taught, to play with ways of research. I think something that we commonly see, and I'm sure that you'll agree with me, is that a lot of teachers in jiu-jitsu tend to copy what their predecessors did. They teach in the same way that their old teacher taught, and they kind of want to perpetuate the same thing. And now I, I know these days, that is becoming a little bit less common, but for the most part, in many parts of the world, it still is what is happening. Um, and I think it was just so refreshing. Like one year I went to a contemporary dance festival in Berlin. It was um, 20, 2018, I believe. After I won Worlds, I went directly to Berlin and it felt so freeing like I feel very liberated because I I often feel at times in jiu-jitsu that we're so fixed on um, interacting with one another with fixed parameters so what do I mean by that like you know we have a six minute round and it's like our end goal ultimately is to try and sub or sweep the person I understand these are the rules of jiu-jitsu right but there's just so many ways that we can actually play the game that that we don't often have that space to play in other ways. Like maybe the objective is more like, let's try and exchange as many different positions as possible in this six minute round. I think there's so much that's been untouched just because we don't have a more open classroom format. And of course I understand to make jujitsu accessible to everyone and with a limited um, time frame of how long a class is run. It, it's difficult to have an open classroom format. But anyway, this this dance festival was pretty much based around being a research festival. So you have a particular theme in every workshop. You can get into groups or pairs. You're set. They set you up with a particular sequence. So I think we can kind of relate this back to jujitsu. You have a certain sequence that you work on. And they gave you mm -hmm. just like different ideas to explore. And you go, you go ahead and do that by yourself, you know, rather than like, oh, no, that's wrong. You should do it this way. It's not so rigid. It's more like we come together in groups to research. We share our thoughts and observations. It's kind of like we're doing the research and then sharing it from group A to B to C to D. And I think, wow, that's truly a different way that we could really look to dance or look to other art forms and really improve our classroom format. So, so one thing I wanted to ask you that was, that was really interesting that you were just talking about is how you think it might be beneficial for classes to be a bit more free form and less goal oriented. I don't know if that's, if I'm kind of capturing that correctly, but do you feel like a lot of that is just because of like the rules of competition and we're always trying to, create winners basically people who can sweep who can pass the guard who can submit do you feel like that is sometimes a detriment to people's progress in jiu-jitsu 100 percent, because i think a lot of schools are not necessarily they're not massively a competitor base like i think majority of the room is 
based around hobbyists. And of course, there are schools that we consider to be more competition type schools. But I think having a more blended approach is actually really beneficial because actually, my personal opinion to be, I'm like doing quotation marks with my fingers, but a master at anything, right? My belief is that well, firstly, I believe no one will ever reach mastery, but <laughs> let's mm. say theoretically, um, you should have a really great ability to improvise. You should have the ability to not be too rigid. You don't need to force things. I think having a both soft and hard approach is really undervalued. I think that because what is considered to be mainstream by competitors being hard, being really pohada, grind mentality. It's not really common to see someone who's going for a more flow approach, who's trying to kind of balance the practice a little bit more. Like, I think mm -hmm. it's really hard for people to think of a winner and balance because we often glamorize this idea of like, oh, fuck balance. Like, I, I totally get it because like, I kind of ebb and flow between that mentality and also like, okay, like there is a lot that we can learn from flow and from having a more open environment because that's when you actually have the ability to see more and to find deep understanding in the positions sometimes when we're forcing things we don't know if those are physical attributes or if that's really because your your technique is superior to your opponent right and i also understand that Usually in a fight, it's a combination of all of those things, right? It's a combination of technique, of your physical attributes, timing. They're all combined together. Uh, just to backtrack momentarily, like when I was trying to describe the research um, workshop style, it's not necessarily about not having goals because I, I think that's a bit wishy-washy not to have goals at all. There's always some sort of goal, but it's more to see like what you will find rather than this is what I have to find. You know, because there's always an element of uncertainty in a fight. I can never predetermine what will happen in a fight, per se, right? Like, I can have ideas about what the fight might look like. I can have ideas about, okay, I think this is really high percentage for me. I think if I do X, Y, Z, this is going to be 9 out of 10, I probably would hit it. But I can't say with the utmost certainty that I would hit it, right? Because we don't know mm -hmm. what's going to happen in the fight. So I think... By having more opportunities to improvise in different ways, I think it can only help our jiu-jitsu. I think, of course, just fighting in itself is an act of improvisation. But I think there are many different um, ways to improvise that also put our bodies in a less stressful environment. So I, I consider fighting, for example, to be a high-stress environment. When you're in a high-stress environment, there's often not much room for creativity. You just do what works and what's, um, what's the most easy to recall from your muscle memory, you know, what you've been drilling most recently and such. But I think in order to really develop and have a really well-rounded game, often people, you know, it's even with the idea of specific training, right? The idea of tapering resistance is a, a similar idea, just slightly different. I think where... Where I exist here is more on the abstract side. I go, <laughs> I go a few realms further. I'm really looking at trying to remove and strip away labels from um, movement in general. I look at everything 
as just human body movement as opposed to, okay, this is a jitsu move. I just think about, okay, if I'm in a reverse delahiva, what is the reverse delahiva trying to achieve in relationship to the top person? And I think about how I can get out of the reverse delahiva just in terms of human body movements. Like, okay, do I need to find a way to internally rotate my leg more? Do I need to raise the level of my hip in order to create a disconnection between myself and my partner, things like that. But I definitely think goals are very important to have in any sort of training structure. There are times where it's nice to have a very open environment, but overall, the difference between jiu-jitsu and dance is that jiu-jitsu has set objectives. Essentially, dance has no purpose. Dance, we can argue, is for expression, but there is really no true purpose. We just give it purpose in ways yeah that makes a lot of sense um so how would you let's say someone's a beginner in jiu-jitsu and you're trying to optimize their training and the, the way they structure it and how many days are intense versus how many days are lower intensity how do you what do you think is the best balance is it just 50 50 or does it depend on the person and their goals what do you think about that if they're really like a beginner beginner um, I don't think intensity is so important at the, at the beginning, honestly. I, I think what's really important for beginners to understand is to really understand what are the objectives of the arts. I think a lot of teachers kind of forget to really state that like very, very clearly. Because often what happens to beginners, even if they go to an introduction class, you get taught a closed guard armbar that's such a finite loop, you know, like often beginners can't even get into close guard when you get them to spar with someone. It's like, you can start in close guard and try and attack it, but it's, it's truly so hard to start from there. Like I I never teach my beginners. Like if it's their first day, I never teach them close guard. The thing that I actually teach them first is how to pass. Why? Because my belief is that we have spent so many years on our feet. We walk, on a daily basis. So our body has the best understanding of how to move on two feet. You put someone on their back, the most experience they have on their back is probably in bed, <laughs> you know? So I, I think it makes more sense to identify first two sets of objectives. Number one, our movement objectives. Where am I trying to move around my partner's body? And since the beginner the person who's starting is on their feet, it's very clear to see like, okay, I am starting behind a toe line. I look at the body like a ladder. I have to climb this ladder. So I've started the toe line. I must progress eventually past the knee line and then eventually past the hip line. And once I'm past the hip line, now I'm getting somewhere. And this is very clear and easy to visualize for a beginner. Because even if they don't know a knee cup pass, they don't know a leg drag, they could simply just jump over the person's hip line and they get it. That is what they need to understand first, in my opinion. If they run around their partner, I I truly don't care on the the first day because what we should be doing as teachers is to inspire people to try and train more. My objective as a teacher, when I'm seeing a day one beginner, this is a bit because I'm a people pleaser as well, to be honest. (laughs) I don't want people to not come back. So I want the person to come back. It's not about, I don't believe in this idea. Okay. Like jujitsu is only for certain types of people. I I believe it's truly, there's something to offer to everyone. So I I don't want to weed people out. I really believe it's a great tool 
to understand yourself better and such. But anyway, so this is usually where I'm starting from, like the passing point of view. And the second set of objectives I refer to as the finishing objectives. So finishing objectives being thinking about submissions and such. And again, I think that's not really relevant um, for a beginner. It's cool to show like one or two submissions because then they, they also get it. It's just about understanding like, okay, my end goal is to get here, but actually the meat of jujitsu is mainly all this other stuff like passing and sweeping and guard play, stuff like that. So that's mainly what I try and prioritize when I'm teaching beginners. Um, I think in the beginning, it has to be a low stress environment. And that usually means that there shouldn't be high intensity because what I've experienced and what I've noticed in a lot of classrooms is that beginners receive too much intensity too fast. And then they start to move just really spastically and they might like hurt themselves or other people. And that's not the aim at all, right? We don't want anybody to get hurt. We don't want anybody to try and muscle. I, I feel like it, it's a little bit um, <laughs> awkward that we leave people in that sort of situation. If they can clearly understand in a low-stress environment what moves they need to do, it's it's more like understanding movement from a collaborative sense. If you collaborate with your partner and allow them to move and they get how to move around your body without resistance first, it makes a lot more sense because you understand how your body should be positioned in relation to your partner. But if you have all this resistance, I think it takes a much longer uh, period of time to actually understand like, okay, when I do a knee cut pass, my hip should be like this in relationship to my partner. But far too often, right? Think about a knee cut pass, right? The bottom guy's got a knee shield. There's always so much space between uh, the top person's hips and the bottom person's hips. Uh, a lot of beginners don't, know that they have to close the space. So it is common sense to a lot of us who've been training the sport for a little while, right? Like just, just things like that, you know, I, I truly believe it's collaboration first and resistance later. But it, it's not sexy to people, you know, if you say, oh, let's collaborate. Like, uh, it's, it's very wishy-washy for some people. And I understand that perspective. That's why I, I think um, the way to teach in the classroom is definitely again, a, a blended approach. Like you do need to have moments where there is high resistance, but they have to be, we have to instill the understanding in our students or people who are coming in that there is tremendous value in training both sides. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think maybe part of that stems from people come in to try and learn how to defend themselves. So they're thinking that they have to be training at this intensity, like almost like a street fight. And so they come in with that expectation and sometimes it might be hard to break them out of that line of thinking. True. Yes. No, no. From a self-defense perspective, I totally, I totally would understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really, really cool that, that you have that approach to, to training. And I think a lot of people, like you said, would benefit from that, whether they're a competitor, whether they're just training for fun, having that, that those varying intensities in their training. Yeah, I think, um, like, even in terms of, like, just to backtrack again to the self-defense element, like, I, I think anytime we're trying to develop a skill, it makes no sense to try and resists really strongly when we're trying to learn something. Eventually, we want to emulate a real-life situation or something that would happen in a street fight. Um, 
I still believe that everything is slow, 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 low resistance, slowly increasing the resistance. Are you competent at this low level first? And then slowly conditioning the person to go into high resistance. But again, I, I know this is my personal belief. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's super interesting, definitely. So I just wanted to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about your, your competition career. Um, and I know sure. you've been training and competing for a long time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you've been training like almost full time since you were a lower belt. So do you want to talk about some of the challenges of competing as a lower belt and going full time at such an early stage in your jiu-jitsu career? Sure. Um, I ha- you are right in that I've been competing almost full time since uh I, I want to say that I made the full switch early blue belt, but um, when I was a white belt, I took a gap year, so mm-hmm. I had all this free time to train, and that was the purpose of why I wanted to take a gap year initially. It was so I could fully focus on this and see how much I could understand about jiu-jitsu. Um, I... I think the initial struggles for me earlier on were more about understanding how to play my style of jiu-jitsu as a, as a blue belt. So I actually won the Abu Dhabi World Pro as a white belt without too much difficulty. And I honestly, I was very successful as a white belt, but everybody knows that doesn't mean a lot. <laughs> so when I went on to blue belt, um, I, I feel like a lot of the moves that I'm doing now are exactly the same as the ones that I were doing at Blue Belt, just evidently a, a lot worse and uh, without the deep understanding that I have now. But a lot of the sequences that I do favor tend to be longer in setup and require more time to set up. There's more strategy, there's more tactics. And I, I definitely thought to myself at the time when I was a blue belt that I would be a much better black belt competitor than I would ever be a blue belt competitor, for example. Um, And I think one of the biggest hurdles for me at blue belt was honestly because I was based in the UK still for the most part uh, in my early blue belt career. I was um, training out of Urban King's gym and the team name is called Inglorious Grapplers with uh, Jude Samuel and Viking Wong. Most of my training partners there were men and just much larger than me. I didn't really have any girls to train with. So I, I, I would face this situation when I would go to competition. I, I, it felt like a completely brand new uh, problem-solving scenario. You know, like the guys wouldn't really move like the girls or they wouldn't have the same flexibility. So it, it didn't really feel like the classroom was able to show me what the competition map would be like. And I know that isn't important to some people. I know some people train, some women train exclusively with men and still do really well. But I think in the way that I personally um, try to emulate the competition environment, it makes the most sense that if I'm fighting against women, I have to train with women also. It's not that I have to train exclusively with women, but that's the easiest way for me to make an accurate problem-solving scenario go from one to one people often ask me 
how do I translate the classroom environment to the competition environment? But that that's, is how you would translate it, in my honest opinion. Because even if a guy is tapering with me, they're tapering their physicality, I know that it's, it's just not real. It's not completely real. You know, it doesn't matter how much body control that person has. I truly believe that it, it's not going to be exact. It's not going to be the same as training with another woman. Um, so it, it was just hard that when I would go back to competition, I just felt I was trying to use physicality to win at times because I was so used to training with bigger people and just trying to force my way into a leg drag and stuff because I, I needed a certain level of physicality in order to actually hang with the guys. I was like trying to train twice as much as the guys and lift more than the guys. Like I, my lifting frequency was higher than them just because I felt like I needed to be stronger in order to hang with them. When I started training with people who are more my size and were more women, there was a certain point in my blue belt career that I was cross training between AOJ and back in England. And that was really helpful because I noticed that Firstly, I could train more just purely because I don't have to use as much physicality. I was fighting people on a technical level because people were more similar to my size. I could actually train for longer. And that meant that I actually had more um, cognitive capacity to focus on learning and evaluating where I was going wrong. Whereas I, I felt like I was always second guessing myself when I was in England and training more with bigger guys because um I, I couldn't tell if I couldn't do a move because I wasn't technical enough or I wasn't strong enough. And I didn't want to make excuses for myself. Like, oh, they're just stronger than me. You know, because I feel like a lot of people console themselves like that. <laughs> and I didn't want to be one of those people. I'm like, ah, maybe it's a technical <laughs> thing. Maybe it's a strength thing. Or maybe it's both. You know, so this this was the thing. Like, my thought process was very jumbled. And I didn't, I couldn't tell what was the actual reality until I started cross-training more and this is why i'm a very big advocate of cross-training you want to encounter as many different problems as possible and try and compare the scenarios like okay this guy has this body type this woman has this body type uh they play this sort of game and just kind of see what works in many different scenarios or rather many different live problems and that helped me a lot because i tra cross-trained a lot during my um purple belt career especially i i did also get I, I would say the most significant amount of injuries during my blue belt career. So I actually didn't win anything too major uh, blue belt. Like I won like a few Abu Dhabi World Pro qualifiers, but I didn't. I broke my foot um, a couple of weeks before the Abu, my last um, yeah blue belt. So I, I had to pull out of the World Pro and also miss Worlds. And then when I went into um, my purple belt, I actually lived in Australia for a year and a half. So that was a really interesting experience. That's where I actually met a lot of the really famous Aussies that we all know now, like Livia Giles, Lachlan Giles, Craig Jones. I, it was a really, really interesting um, time period for all of us. I, I'm so glad that I had that opportunity to meet them there. And in Australia, it was honestly one of the moments where I started to think a lot about smart training. And especially because I was traveling so much still and I didn't always have access to high level training partners or people necessarily the, the same level as me. It, it really became about how can I use certain people to train certain things? So it was really almost like specific, specific training. <laughs> <laughs> 
ultra specific training <laughs> yeah and those those sort of things definitely made it helpful for me in in the long term to be able to train nomadically you know because I, I think a lot i do get a lot of questions from people asking me like how do you travel and still manage to perform at a high level you know and i think at least for me because i i'm half chinese and half italian but i was born in the uk uh one of the one of my home bases is hong kong so i always have a home in hong kong and i have trusted training partners there that i've obviously known for quite an extended period of time and similarly in, in europe because i've been teaching from uh, my early purple belt days i kind of have a worldwide network of training partners that i also frequently keep in touch with so wherever i go i more or less know okay there's going to be someone of this level and then i can do this sort of training with them because i know they like this position and then i slowly help them so i think like this idea of trying to train is not about training yourself if you're too focused on yourself it's hard for you to further your improvement you also need to think about the better your training partner is the better you're going to become so i'm always thinking about okay if i leave this person with this set of concepts or this set of techniques and they're going to work it by the time that i come back to that person the next time i know i'm going to be able to specific train really well with them or at least better than i did the previous time so this is something that i do um because I also regularly revisit the same places because I often will like do a seminar in a place and I'll revisit the next year or revisit like in, in the winter time and stuff. But I think it's a very unique situation, you know, because I, I think a lot of people have a tendency to just to stay in one gym or like they'll only travel a very finite period of the year. Um, but ultimately, if I have to keep it concise and talk about how to create a nomadic learning model, it's firstly evaluating what your game is currently like. What is the current baseline? Being really honest with yourself. Like identify your A game, but also identify like where do you know the least? Like trying to expand the amount of knowledge you have as much as possible. It's not like you have to be good at everything, but you have to be really honest with yourself and try and see where do you usually get stuck? What are your tendencies? Thinking about things also beyond technique. I think... Uh, many of us overall obsess about technique, but it's a lot more about understanding more um, the relationship between space and time. And I know I sound a little bit wanky saying this, but understanding how space and time works together, I think, is a really critical concept for many. If we can understand how space is related to time in relation to the techniques, then you're going to understand timing to a really high level and you're going to understand how to execute moves successfully. I think by only learning techniques, it's like having an empty shell of a technique. Well, I often like to call this technique without soul. If you just try and memorize a technique, it's, it's not really the real thing. I've actually got quite a funny story to say, um, kind of related to this. I, I once took a private with Kayotaha. I, I think it was like in... Um, 2015 before like a nogi world's camp i took a private on 50 50 and cairo had shown a technique in this private i was with my friend so i was like trying to copy what he did and honestly i thought i did a pretty good job i was like damn that was good <laughs> he showed me once and then i did it and it was like exactly the same and he was like no that isn't real i was like 
what is he talking about? <laughs> and he was like, that was an emulation. You don't understand what you're doing. And at the time, I was like, okay, he's just attacking me. <laughs> but when I, that was such a valuable sentence to me in the long term. Because when I think back to a lot of what I was doing throughout my Blue Belt career, a lot of what I was doing was truly emulating because I, I didn't really understand what I was trying to achieve with certain moves. I was trying to watch videos that I had seen online, for example, from the Mendes brothers about the Barambolo. It wasn't until I really went to AOJ and actually felt the Barambolos of the other students that I was like, oh my God, there's so much missing from my technique because I was just trying to copy it at an aesthetic level, you know, and trying to get a technique to look the same at an aesthetic level, I think is the first step. Because if it looks similar to what you're, you're watching online, then that's a step in a good, like in a really positive direction, in my opinion. But I, I felt like my pressure was off. There were so, so many things that were completely off. And I, I realized that, yes, that, that's what he meant by emulating. And what I need to understand in order to do the moves well is to understand what I'm trying to achieve with the moves. And I, I think that goes back to what I, I'm trying to get at about trying to gain deep understanding. And I think through having the space to learn in an environment that doesn't have too much stress all the time means that you can think more deeply and understand why the moves work the way they do. Some people don't fully understand why they're doing what they do. They only know it because their teacher told them and they regurgitate the same information. But I think to fully comprehend that, okay, I'm trying to create, for example, internal rotation in his knee. Because when there's internal rotation in his knee, I know that his hip has to turn inwards to relieve the pressure from his knee. And when the hip turns inwards, this will create back exposure. Because some people will just say, oh, just turn the knee in and then take the back, right? But then it removes so many levels of understanding. Because a lot of higher belts especially, I, I think they forget that a lot of things, it's not common sense to beginners, you know? And because I've also been um, quite alone in a lot of my um, journey in jiu-jitsu, like, I had teachers, right? But because I was traveling so much, I had to become my own teacher. I had to self-learn a lot. And honestly, instructionals were, instructionals and subscriptional sites were like the my bread and butter. Like, I'm so happy to see this generation of like BJJ fanatics, Jiu-Jitsu X, because I wish I had that as a blue belt so much. I'm like, oh my God, information is so readily accessible now. It's amazing. I wish I really had that back then. I think I would have gone on a lot further and faster. I know that sounds like a Danaha DVD title. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I, I definitely think that self-learning is possible, but it, it takes, it really does take a lot. Like the reason, I think the reason why I've been able to improve at such a fast, like a reasonably fast rate is also because I was fortunate enough to have gym environments where I could create my own environment. Similarly to my good friend, John Thomas, who's based in Sweden, he often creates his training environment. He can choose to focus on what he wants. So he wants a specific train this because it's something that he's working on. He can 
always fine-tune the things that he wants to do rather than following a syllabus. And I know not everyone is so fortunate to be able to have maths or create their own environment. Like I, I spent a lot of my training in Hong Kong going to a gym when the classes weren't on. I have like my one training partner, another really good friend of mine. Um, we would just train together during that time, specific training, we'd drill, we'd spar, but we work on all the things that we want to do. And I, that's that's kind of what I mean also about having an open training environment, that you have the ability to train the things that you think you need to work on. So if you're always following a syllabus, it isn't always relevant to the, the thing that will actually give you the most growth. And I am also of the line of thought that I don't necessarily believe that we have to focus on getting good as fast as possible, because I think that removes a lot of the beauty and um, practicing the art if we optimize too much. But I, I still believe in having a decent amount of growth, you know? Yeah. So you talked a little bit about traveling and how people have had questions for you about competing at a high level while you're traveling so much. And I read recently a quote that John Donaher posted talking about how basically if you're traveling, it's it's good for life experience, but it's not as good for building skills. And it was just something that made me think. So what's your opinion on on that statement and how have you been able to to balance your travel with your skill building and your high level of jujitsu? I think what John does is really impressive in general, but what John does is really create a skill development uh, laboratory in his classroom. And I think most people don't do that in their classroom. What I effectively do through my travel is actually, I, I balance the time being stuck in a more classic classroom format where I have to follow a syllabus versus when I'm traveling, I actually get to work on a lot of the things that I want to. And I consider travel to be data collection. Um, data collection in the sense that because I'm training with so many different people and new bodies that these people have no idea about my game for the most part, right? So it, it's easy to have a complete clean slate to see if things actually work. Often, our hardest training partners are the ones that we face in the, the same classroom that we enter every day because they get to know like what your fighting style is, what your psychology is like, what are your favorite moves. It's a lot easier to anticipate, you know. So I, I think in one sort of sense, travel is really helpful to encounter new problems and really to enhance your problem-solving skill set. Where travel can become troublesome, and it's not to say I haven't encountered these problems at times. Sometimes you don't have a high-level training environment. It depends where you're visiting also. You know, you can't just say point blank that, oh, travel is not good for skill development because it can be. It's just a, it is an additional stressor because when you're constantly changing your environment, you're adding extra stress into your current like living situation, your daily life. When you have something that's standardized and is steady, there's a routine, it's easier to optimize that way and try and focus on the one task that is to just get better at jujitsu or getting better at, like, I don't know, collar and sleeve, for example. So I, I think there's pros and cons to both, you know? Um, in my experience, travel has been really useful, but I, I think it's more so the way that I've been using it. Um, I previously talked a little bit about how I, I've had the luxury to create my own training environment for a long time, like especially when I was based out of Hong Kong. I, I could turn up to the gym when classes weren't on and choose 
my training partners, I, I, I basically, my process was a bit like I would text two or three people that I wanted to train with and see if they were free. And we would get together at a certain hour and we would basically just do all our training in one little block. So instead of doing a morning class or a night class, we train like three, four hours all at once. And then we were done for the day. So I actually opened up a lot of time in a day to do other things if it was necessary, you know, like, yeah. like if I need to take my grandma somewhere or like just to run up errands or to do online coaching, I had the time to do that. I didn't have to be in the gym at this time or this time. It, it wasn't set. So actually it gave me a lot of um, flexibility and room to think about jujitsu because I didn't have to think about, oh, I have to be back in the evening to make sure I get enough rounds in and I can also again design the environment so that okay today I just want to focus more on just sparring I want to collect as much data as possible and tomorrow I'm going to look at that footage but something I actually love to do is film myself rolling I think it's the most valuable tool if you don't have someone who's giving you feedback regularly film yourself build a visual point of reference to what you look like so you actually are accountable so, well, you, my personal opinion is we can't only have our memory as the only thing that remembers the role because I think most people don't remember the role <laughs> correctly. I don't. <laughs> right? Like, in general, it's like, oh, yeah, I was so fast. Oh, my God, like, that technique was so sick. And then you look at it, and it was utter shit. You know, there's been so many times in the past when I first started filming myself, I was like, oh, my God. How fucking delusional am I that I thought that was good? <laughs> you know, so over time, because I've been filming myself for so long, now I know that what I feel and what I think is now more close to the reality. But before I was like, fuck, I'm delusional. What is going on? So that's definitely a very um, useful tool. And everyone that I, I mentor that's online coaching with me, this is, this is what they have to do. They have to film themselves. Of course, they send it to me, so I give them feedback, but they also have to rewatch it. But I always tell them, you don't expect me to watch your tape and you're not bothered to watch your own tape because if you're invested in your own progression and your own growth, you should be invested in watching yourself. I think that is the best way to get better, honestly. Like if we don't need to be spoon-fed by people. I think a lot of us expect to be spoon-fed by our instructors. Oh, we're paying for service. I attend XYZ classes, so I should come out with this. Da, da, da. I, I don't think we should act so entitled. I often, I know I'm going on a tangent, but yeah, no, I, I think good. we're accountable for our own growth. You know, like it's the same idea of going to university is about becoming an independent learner. I really think it's it's so valuable to be invested in your own progress that don't have any expectation that someone else is going to give you feedback. You need to go and do that for yourself or learn how to do that. And honestly, like what I try to instill in people as a teacher and through like the online coaching and all these online mentorships that I do is I want people to eventually not need me because I would love to have more time back in my day to do my other shit. <laughs> you know, like I, I want people to become really sufficient at self-learning so that they don't need me, that they can evaluate things by themselves, that they have the tools that they need, you know, that, 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 that is what I think is the most beautiful thing about these mentorship experiences for me, at least. Yeah, I think that's a really unique thing you do too with your mentorship 
your mentorship that you do online with some of your clients. And I was wondering too, you talked about filming yourself and the value that that has. Are you a big fan of studying matches and instructionals as well, or, or do you prefer one or the other? I do a bit of both. I would say I do study matches a lot less than I used to. Um, I'm a big fan of watching instructionals for sure. I think my point of view as a teacher is that I need to constantly develop myself. It's the same. Well, I also think as a practitioner, I think that way too. But if I'm only using my way of teaching as the way to make instructionals or to convey information, because my personal goal with instructionals and teaching is to be able to articulate and convey concepts with more clarity than other teachers. Like this is my ultimate goal because I think that is, that is evidence of me being a good communicator. If I can try and understand the feeling in my body when I do a Delahiva technique or a lapel guard uh, technique, for example, if I can convey that really clearly, just for an instructional, imagine what my ability would be like in person. Yeah. I want people, it's not really, um, I, I mean, I definitely do get some gratification from thinking that, <laughs> but it, it's more that I have this personal desire to want to be able to convey things that the other people weren't able to convey to me or communicate to me when I was coming up in the sport because I, I personally didn't get this information from anybody. I got like little tidbits that people would show me in in-person privates. And then I would think about how it felt when they did it on me and how I could translate that into words, basically how I could use language to describe that feeling more closely. Like th this is something that's really important to me, being able to convey things and be able to communicate clearly in jujitsu and also outside of jujitsu. Um, I think there's so much value in match analysis. It's honestly just more that I don't have as much time as I used to. When I was a blue and purple belt, I studied a lot of matches. Um, these days, my, my routine is mainly based around like, okay, I need to train a sufficient amount. I need to not be an asshole in my relationship. <laughs> I, I need to um, give my online students the time that they deserve so that they are having a meaningful exchange with me too and take the dog out for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like real life shit that's happening behind the scenes too. So I, I would love to, and I definitely... Um, I definitely make it a thing. Like I, I have different sorts of goals in my life, like different categories of goals. Like some things are daily goals. Some things are weekly goals. Some things are like, let me hit a monthly quota of like, I'll look at a certain amount of matches. I, I, I for this month, I haven't really put a certain number because I'm also like on a seminar tour and stuff. It, it's a little bit harder to adhere to like rigid structures. And Part of me really loves open environments, abstract ideas, and having flexibility. And then part of me, very, very small part of me likes routine. <laughs> so that, that you can also see throughout this podcast as a, a recurring theme of like, okay, I like openness. I like freedom. I like being able to create my own things. I think something I'm learning actually is about having more, more routine and more... Um, fixed things like this was actually um one of my goals when i went to brazil in the summertime i was in brazil for like two two and a half months i actually just came back early august um 
it's just to adhere to someone else's structure, you know, follow the class structure, do as they do, try and understand what I was interpreting as the Brazilian way. So I think what, what I do is a very, it's a, these are like westernized ideas, you know, in a way that, oh, I, I, I want to create my own environment. We can optimize. Let's <laughs> optimize, you know, like it's, it's truly like if we had to put a label on it, I was like, this is a more American jujitsu yeah. sort of um, idea than like, oh, just just train. Shut up. Don't talk too much. Don't talk in the roles. Don't, don't just talk after the training, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So I wanted to pivot a little bit and talk about uh, your 2021 Pan Am experience because I believe that was your first major competition as a black belt. And I think a lot of people had really high expectations for you. You've been doing so well in the lower belts, winning a lot of big tournaments. So what what was it like going into that tournament? Did it feel different than the tournaments you had done previously? Or was it just, did it feel the same once you got on the mat? Honestly, for my entire career, every time I won a major, I like felt nothing. So I was like, shit, if I win black belt worlds and I also feel nothing, was this all a lie? (laughs) So it was, I'm never nervous before competition. Like really like throughout Mm -hmm. the years, people ask me like, how are you so calm? But also like when I was younger and taking exams, like I don't freak out until like the day before, like maybe the day before I'd have some nerves, but I'm like really chill. It's hard to tell that I'm stressing and stuff. So I, to be completely honest with you, for, for this Pan Americans, I, I think because there were certain expectations of me and I had certain expectations of myself, and I, I did genuinely want to do well. And I, I was a little bit more nervous, and there was a lot of anticipation, more so than any event that I've done, for sure. Um, I have competed at the black belt level, and I because I've been competing in the AJP tournament since uh, basically since I got my brown belt, I did my first brown black tournament um august 2019 so i I have been fighting black belts already for the last two years minus the the downtime we had a bit when um the pandemic hit Mm -hmm. so i i knew that my skill level was up there i was pretty confident that i could hang out i i was training in brazil with some of the best people in the world and I, i i was problem solving through that too so i i knew that I could definitely hang and I could do a good performance. It just came down to the day. Will I have a good performance on the day? So yeah, I was like anticipating it a lot. I was a little bit nervous. And honestly, I felt, I still felt like I had a really good performance. It wasn't the desired outcome, but I was pretty happy with it. I really just felt like, you know, I kind of, um, lost the match on my own terms. <laughs> it was just stupid. I, I got a little bit um, cocky towards the end of the match that I thought I could, I thought I had enough time to either do another sweep or to get a back take. And something that's really important to me as a competitor is that I'm able to express my fight on my own terms. If I have to fight in a different way just in order to win, I don't think that's really authentic to my style of fighting. And it's something that I often express to my coach, uh, Murilo Santano. He's on the same page with me too, you know, like winning is not necessarily everything, but if expressing yourself through your fight is something that's important to you, which it is to me, it doesn't matter that I got second this time because I'm going to find the way that I'm going to be able to win with the way that I want to fight. 
But yeah, no, I actually did feel something this time. So I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so I, I was pretty, I was pretty um, pleased to know that, okay, that definitely, that feels like there's more meaning to this now. I've been waiting my entire career to fight in a black belt major. This was the why I was dreaming about since I was a blue belt. Because like, I, I didn't really care about any of the other competitions. I remember when I... This is a kind of funny story. Um, when I did my second Pebble Belt World title, I really didn't want to do it. I was honestly, when I look back uh, with hindsight, I was being a little bit stroppy. I was like, fuck, I want to do Brown Belt Worlds. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do Pebble Belt Worlds again. Like, I already did it. Like, I don't want to do it again. I'm like, it's it's just too easy. Like, I know, like, sometimes the margins that I win by are like, it's just like by two points or by advantage, but like I'm just so relaxed in the fight, and I I feel very certain that I'm going to um to win at that point. Like it's nicer at black belt. I don't feel so certain, and there's like higher caliber people. People understand how to play the rules more. That there's a lot more than what you see with the visual eye, from what I'm experiencing at black belt. So that that's really enjoyable to me that I can fight on so many different levels. It's not just um technique for technique there's like oh okay like i let you score on me now but later on there's yeah that that's a really interesting part of black belt competition for me but the second well the second purple belt world title i remember i the the week or two before worlds i remember i was like i'm not i'm just gonna go i'm gonna watch everyone else i'm signed up but i'm just gonna watch everyone else i don't really want to do it i'm not into it my head's not into it i remember i even texted keenan at one point i was like have you felt this way before like i'm feeling really like my heart's not into it i just want to fight at a higher level i i I realized that i was like i in hindsight again i just I was too um, focused on certain outcomes. Like I, I think I saw myself wanting to compete at black belt so much that I just couldn't comprehend having to do purple belt worlds again. Because it wasn't part of my original timeline. Mm-hmm. You see, like, I was very fixated on certain goals at the time, rather than really just trying to enjoy the process. I think at the time I was thinking a lot about things like. I'm just getting older. I'm not getting any younger. There's so many other things that I want to do still after I win Black Belt Worlds. Because actually one of my personal goals is to win Black Belt Worlds in two different weight classes. I love to win a lightweight. I love to win a um, featherweight. So because I knew that those were my goals, I was like, oh shit, I'm still here. So I still need to do minimum time at Brown. And then I have to do... And so I was like working it up in my head, getting very overly fixated. And I actually think pandemic grounded me a lot in that because I was so grateful after pandemic just to be able to train. And I think many of us can relate that I didn't care who I had to train with. You could give me, I don't know, like your neighbor's dog i like oh my god we can <laughs> roll yes let's go let's go i was so happy after this there was like a totally newly found level of gratitude that i i was definitely grateful for having ha- being able to train at unity is already something that i'm extremely grateful for but i i think there was just such a deep level of gratitude to have jiu-jitsu back in my life that i, I had never had before um 
But yeah, damn, I'm going on some tangents here. Um, no, you're good. You're totally good. The, the t- so the two weeks before Worlds, I I just went to dance class every day, like, like house dance. So house dance is a lot about footwork. Footwork is something that I'm really passionate about in general. Like if you ever hear me teaching passing, and I will eventually do a passing instructional, um, I talk a lot about footwork. I remember there was a, a time where I was in LA with Isaac Dodelein as well, and I was talking a lot about footwork. So I was saying how much I appreciated like his footwork patterns and stuff. And I, I think it's kind of funny now. He's like talking a lot about footwork, footwork, footwork. Yep. I'm really happy he's doing that. Um, I think it, it's a really underrated thing that people don't really talk about a lot for passing is footwork. We talk a lot about passes, but not so much about footwork. So my aim in order to move really well at Worlds, if I did it, because I, I was still being very stroppy, I'm like, oh, I just want to do what I enjoy and something that something that sparks joy for me right now. Because at, at the time, I, I didn't feel motivated. Like it, it was a goal I had already achieved. So I didn't really feel the same spark or the same level of enthusiasm as I did for the first year going into Purple Belt Worlds. But I was just like really enjoying dancing and getting like high quality movement through like a lot of footwork based dance steps. And honestly, eventually in the end, I was like, fuck it, I'm being an idiot. I should just go compete. I should just go have fun with it. Like do things that I don't normally do. Like try and pass more. Don't play God all the time. Don't sit on your ass all the time, Margot. You're more than just a God player. Strip this label off of yourself. Uh, Man, like I, I thought it was like one of my um, best performances at that time, up until that present moment, right? I, I felt very free for the first time that I, I didn't necessarily always feel that way in competition. Like, I felt like I could do whatever I wanted. I felt very comfortable to explore all of the parts of my jiu-jitsu. And I think that is a, a personal goal in my jiu-jitsu and a personal goal just in terms of the more general um, theme of movement. So I want to be able to feel very liberated in my body. So that performance actually did make me really happy and I'm glad that I did it in the end. But yeah, I I feel sorry that I was so stroppy. No, <laughs> and I was like asking so many questions <laughs> to like all these different people at the time. I was like talking to Keenan and I told Marilla, I was like, I don't know my heart's into this. <laughs> I only want to do things that I'm passionate about. But yeah, I mean, it, it was a great experience overall. I, I definitely um, took a, a lot away from that. Yeah, it's yeah. funny how sometimes you can go into a competition feeling like you don't want to be there and then things turn out completely differently than you expect. So it's cool that you were able to go in and utilize passing and different techniques and feel comfortable out there. I'll bet that you're you're glad you did it. <laughs> I, I mean, I definitely was. You know, it's always like, oh, well, shit. Like, I got a second world title now. Afterwards, <laughs> <laughs> you're like... Ah, that was fun after all. It's just like, what else would I have done? Sat, sat in the hotel or like watched everyone else, then I'd probably get firmer. So that that's kind of how I was talking to myself that day. I was like, okay, like I know you don't really want to do it, but like just see it as another day of training. Just go out there and have fun. Mm-hmm. And I think that was part of the um, the message to myself about translating the classroom environment as closely to the competition environment. So I think a lot of us think like. Okay, my competition game is, whereas I think in present moment, no, my game is, that it's not competition. Competition doesn't change how I necessarily, um, the moves that I do. What competition does makes me more assertive 
it makes me um, give less room to play because I'm often very guilty of giving a lot of room for my training partners to play and um, training. Even in pro training, there's a lot of times that I'm more interested to see what the person will do. So that's why I always refer to myself as a counter player. I want to see what they want to do. And if I have deep enough understanding of jujitsu, I should be able to get out of it. I don't believe in always having to impose first. But this also was a lesson for me um, throughout my Brazil trip. Because I, I noticed everyone just wants to impose <laughs> all the time. And I, I realized, you know, it's my own fighting psychology is so attached to certain ideas and self-indulgent ways that I want to fight, right? But there's nothing wrong in imposing. And I think I applied negative connotation to forcing things, whereas that there has to be some sort of physicality behind certain moves, especially on the highest level of competition, if you aim to win, yep. right? But I think there's a large part of me that's really into like self-discovery, exploration, deep understanding. And I think that only happens when you allow things to happen rather than forcing things to happen. When you force things to happen, the end game is imminent. Uh, all the interesting exchanges in my experience, happen out of sometimes allowing things to happen. In Pans, I definitely was trying to assert myself more, not necessarily let uh, Tata get too far away from me. Because I, I, from my understanding of Tata, I interpret her to be like very dynamic, aggressive, like very fast paced. And it, this is like the total opposite of what I consider myself <laughs> to be. <laughs> like, I'm playful, so when I'm playful, I can come off as fast and dynamic, but it's not necessarily, I wouldn't consider myself, oh, I'm dynamic fast. Like, those are not the first words that come to my mind, but they are a byproduct of being playful at times. I feel like I'm more, like, methodical. I I'm like a <laughs> fucking tortoise. Like, I just want to be slow, methodical, but I hate to clamp people. I just want to walk really slowly. <laughs> that's kind of my style that's funny yeah i would definitely encourage everyone to go back and watch that match on flow grappling it was cool having the commentators too Hal teague and i believe kendall rusing was the other commentator and they did a great job with your match um and tata's a re really good competitor as well so can you talk a little bit about the the nogi worlds and the worlds coming up are you planning on doing both of those i'm definitely in for worlds i am signed up for nogi worlds right now but I, I committed to this seminar tour a while ago before Nogi Worlds got announced. And right now I'm in mm -hmm. McAllen, Texas. I'm going to be slowly making my way up to Austin on Tuesday. So I'm hoping to get some roles while I'm in Austin and stuff. Just continue training. My, my mindset is always that, you know, I'm, I'm training all the time. So technically speaking, I should always be prepared. Um, my, my main... My main desires are always in the gear right now. I, I did text Flow Grappling the other day that 2022 would be my no gear. <laughs> but um, for, for now, I'm planning to do it. But I have told all like my close teammates and friends that I'm going to wait up until the deadline and decide whether I pull out just based on how this seminar talk kind of um, pans out. If I'm like training good, if my weight is good and all that. I'll, I'll try and do it but you can see there's also a recurring theme with me like i often say ah, i don't really want to do it and then i, I end up <laughs> doing something 
Like, and you win. Like, like <laughs> Nogi World, Brown Belt Nogi Worlds, I remember I was being such an asshat before the tournament. <laughs> I was telling everyone, I, I don't really want to do it. Like, I, yeah, like, I, I'm not really training for it. Like, I was just, like, doing gi, mainly. And I, two weeks before, I was like, yeah, no, I'll, I'll just train. I'm, like, signed up anyway. I could just pull out. So I spent, like, two weeks before Nogi Worlds training Nogi, and I just went and do it. I, I did it. And then I was like, well, shit, like, why do I keep doing this? Like, I should, like, change my attitudes <laughs> a little bit more. So, <laughs> thankfully, I'm trying to be less of an asshat and not <laughs> not take it like that. Because I know Black Belt's going to be super different. I think part of the reason, I'm also trying to be as authentic as possible with you here. Um, I, I think part of that attitude was also because I didn't feel super challenged at um, Pebble Belt or Brown Belt. Whereas now mm -hmm. I feel like I can't fuck around as much, pretty much, you know? Yeah. Um, I think everything deserves a certain level of respect. And it wasn't like I wasn't respecting things before. It was just more that I'm often very indecisive with um, these sort of things. With a geek competition, I have absolute certainty. Every time it's with Nogi, I'm like, ah! And it's, <laughs> it's really not like my Nogi is bad. Like, I have some of the best nogi training partners at unity you know they have junior casio uh, we've mm -hmm. got diego pato around at the moment we've had really high caliber nogi people around recently we had eddie cummings in the past so it's just really just me <laughs> but i'll definitely be at gi worlds given that it's on um i'm i feel very skeptical that it will be on just simply because I don't think it's fair that certain athletes around the world can't attend, given the travel restrictions and such. I think if only Americans can mainly come and some Brazilians can come, then it's almost more like an American Nationals than a Worlds Championship. So in my heart, I, I really want Worlds to happen regardless, but I, I just don't think it's fair for um, the other athletes who have been stuck in other parts of the world. Like Australia has been in lockdown for so long. Um, there's people in Korea who cannot train at all. Like in Seoul, it's completely no training. And so I just don't think you can classify it as a world championship if you don't have athletes of the world. Yeah, that's that's been something that's been really frustrating. Not seeing some of the high level like European grapplers, like you said, the Australian grapplers. They can't they can't make it out here yet. But yeah, I would like to see it either way, just because I feel like it'll bring something back to the jiu-jitsu community that it was missing during the pandemic, and hopefully get more people excited about the the professional aspect of the sport but but yeah it is sad to to see some of the competitors missing out on it yeah no I, absolutely i mean in, in my heart that that is the event i've been waiting my whole life well the, the whole mm -hmm. life of the last 10 years almost <laughs> yeah. so like i i definitely I definitely will show up as soon as the registration opens i will sign up inevitably um I'm hoping to be at World Pro before Worlds as well. That that's supposed to be in November, but um, mm -hmm. actually, I just started applying for my green card. So I am hoping that. I mean, I'm hoping I can attend, but I might not be able to leave America. So I'm trying to figure all of that out. But either way, I'm gonna try and be at, at as many American events as possible. Like I'll be at Charlotte Open at the end of this month. I'm gonna see if there's something. Uh, maybe in October. Otherwise, I'll do something in November before Worlds. Just see how everything goes. Maybe I'll take some super fights. I haven't done a fight to win since 2017. It just feels very... I don't know why this hiatus has been so long. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, we're definitely looking forward to watching you compete at the Worlds. Hopefully the Nogi Worlds. I'd love to see you on Fight to Win as well, just see you in a different rule set. And I really appreciate your time today. I apologize again for some of the technical difficulties we had earlier. No, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> so are there any, any parting words or any other messages you want to leave to, to the audience before we get out of here? I just want to thank you so much, Danny, for having me on the show. And um, I've been receiving a lot of uh, messages recently about my instructionals on Jiu-Jitsu X and such. So I, I just want to uh, remind people that I will be coming out with some more instructionals very shortly. I'm actually in San Diego um, next week filming another instructional. It, it should be one lapel instructional. And if I have time, I will be launching my passing instructional. Otherwise, that will come out towards the end of the year. But I'm glad that everyone has been enjoying them so far and I all I'm always open to feedback. So if anyone wants to DM me to talk more about instructionals or just teaching in general, like I, I always welcome people to reach out and to talk to me or to ask questions about the instructional. And yeah, that's pretty much it for me. That's awesome. Thank you again. And definitely check out Margot's instructionals. They're on Jiu-Jitsu X. She has one on the underhook De La Hiva position and one on off-bouncing from the guard. I've seen parts of both of them, and she teaches incredibly well, really detailed, and really, really unique teaching style. So I would definitely encourage people to check those out. So thank you again, Margot, for coming on. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This is episode 107 of the Open Guard Cast, and we'll see you guys soon.